Welcome back, everybody. This morning, last night, we heard from Dr. Terry Mortensen and had a wonderful time with him, and we get two more sessions with him today, along with uh, Dr. Matthew McLean in the middle uh, part of the day. Uh, I, Dr. Mortensen clearly knows his stuff, but something you don't know about him is that he and his wife like to build walls and drywall and remodel houses together. So uh, not only does he use his mind, but he uses his hands, and we appreciate that very much. Would you give another warm welcome to Dr. Mortensen, please? Well, good morning. How many of you were not here last night? Okay, a few of you. Well, welcome. Uh, I do work for Answers in Genesis, uh, some ministry located in northern Kentucky, and there we've built the Creation Museum, which we opened in 2007, and have had over 3 million visitors to from all over the world. And then in 2016, we opened the Ark Encounter, uh, a replica of Noah's Ark built almost completely out of wood to the dimensions in the Bible. And we've had over 2 million visitors since we opened there. And so uh, we have some information about that and encourage you to check that out. This morning I want to speak to you about millions of years, the idea's unscientific origin and its catastrophic consequences. If you've ever picked up a, uh, a geology textbook or you've been to a museum, you've seen a chart something like this, where the evolutionists picture the history of life uh, over millions and millions of years from simple bottom-dwelling sea creatures that evolved into fish and then amphibians and reptiles, mammals, birds, and people. And the evolutionists say that from the first living cell to the present is about 3.5 billion years, just an incomprehensible amount of time. Where did that idea come from? It's a relatively new idea, really, in the 20th century, uh, but the millions of years before we got to the billions uh, was developed in the late 18th and early 19th century. And so we want to look at that history. But before we do, I want to remind you of two very relevant passages of Scripture. In Colossians chapter, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells the Corinthian Christians, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So Paul says we're involved in a war. It's not a war of spears and arrows. It's a war of ideas. He calls them speculations. The King James translates that Greek word imaginations. And Paul says they're high and lofty ideas. They really sound like truth, and they're raised up against the knowledge of God which means that they're raised up against his word, which is where we get the knowledge of God. And Paul says we need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, which means to take every thought captive to the word of God. And then in Colossians 2, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul says be careful. There are ideas out there that sound like truth, knowledge, but they're actually deceptions. They're the philosophies and traditions of men. And this isn't the only verse in the Bible that warns Christians about being deceived. We can all be deceived. 
I can be deceived. If we're only given certain information and we're not allowed to hear contrary information, we can be deceived. If you meet somebody who says, I can't be deceived, they're deceived already. Every one of us can be deceived. So Paul says, we're in a war. It's a war of ideas, and it is a very serious war because it relates to our knowledge of God, and therefore it relates to our spiritual well-being and our eternal destiny. Well, what I want to show you is that the church has been taken captive. Most of the church has been taken captive by philosophy and traditions of men, speculations and imaginations masquerading as scientific fact. Now, before we look at that history, we need to define an important word, and that's the word science. How many of you have ever heard this statement? Evolution is science and creation is religion. Or evolution is science and creation is faith. Anybody ever heard something like that? Uh, it's a mantra of the evolutionists. They like to say that. But whenever I hear that, I know that either that person doesn't really understand the nature of science and this origins debate, or he's deliberately trying to confuse us. Because to understand the origins debate, we need to understand that there are two broad categories of science. I like to call them operation science and origin science. Operation science is what we normally think of when we think of science. It uses what I like to call the scientific method, which I would describe this way. The use of observable, repeatable experiments in a controlled environment, that's usually in a laboratory, to understand how things operate or function in the present physical universe in order to find cures for disease, produce new technology, put on a man on the moon. So operation science is also called experimental science or observational science. And uh, it's the science that put a cell phone in everybody's pocket and air conditioning in our houses. Most of biology, chemistry, physics, meteorology, engineering research, medical research, they're in the realm of operation science experimental observational science. But that kind of science won't answer the question, how did the Grand Canyon form? Because you can't recreate the Grand Canyon in the laboratory. It's there, those rock layers and that huge hole in the ground is there, and you want to know what happened in the unobservable past to produce what I'm looking at in the present. That's a historical question. Operation, experimental, observational science won't answer the question, how did those creatures come into existence? Well, it will answer the question, how do you get a dog from a previous dog? Or how do you get a squirrel from a previous squirrel? But the question we're really interested in is, how did the first dog come into existence? How did the first squirrel come into existence? That was a historical event in the past. You can't recreate that first squirrel or first dog. Operation science, experimental observational science, won't answer the question, how did Saturn come into existence? You can't recreate that in the laboratory. It's there, the rings are there, and you want to know what happened in the past to explain what you see in the present. So for those historical questions, we need what I call origin science. And origin science uses what I call the legal historical method, which can be described this way. The use of reliable eyewitness testimony, if any is available, and observable evidence 
to determine the past unobservable, unrepeatable event or events which produce the observable evidence we see in the present. So if, if I was standing on the north rim of the Grand Canyon, I'm looking at this big hole in the ground, and I had a Hopi Indian standing next to me, and he said, well, I was standing right here, and I saw the Grand Canyon form. And I could ask him questions, and I could find out he's not been smoking some weird plant. He's not been drinking some weird liquid. He's a man of sound mind, sound character. Then I'd have an eyewitness for the formation of the Grand Canyon. But we don't have any eyewitness for that. So we're left with the observational evidence. The rock layers, the erosional features, the fossils in the rocks, the radioactive isotopes in some of the rocks. And we're looking at that evidence in the present and we're trying to reconstruct what happened in the past. The question of origins, the question of creation versus evolution, the question of whether the universe is only a few thousand years old or 14 billion years old, those are questions in the realm of origin science, not in the realm of operation science. And most of histor all of historical geology, paleontology, archaeology, cosmology, and criminal investigation are in the form, uh, in the realm of origin science or historical science. It's exactly what a police officer does. My son was a sheriff's deputy for 12 years in Florida before he moved his family to Honduras to become missionaries in, in May. And if he got a call on his police radio, Mortensen, report to 2417 Johnson Street. Uh, we've been told there's a dead body in the living room. We want you to investigate, figure out the cause of death. Well, he goes there. He can't raise the guy from the dead and ask him what happened. He has to look at the evidence. And he's, he's going to come to one of three conclusions. It was murder, suicide, or death by natural cause. So he's going to examine the evidence. And if he's a good cop, he's going to go and talk to the neighbors. Why? He's looking for an eyewitness. Did you hear anything? Did you see anything? So that he can reconstruct what happened in the past to produce what he sees in the present. Most evolutionists deny this distinction. But it's a significant distinction. Some evolutionists do acknowledge it. Ernst Mayer, the great um, professor of zoology at Harvard University, an atheist until his death at the age of 100 in 2005, he said, Evolution is a historical process that cannot be proven by the same arguments and methods by which purely physical or functional phenomena can be documented. So we're looking at the question of origins. We're looking at the question of evolution, millions of years, creation, thousands of years. And in the first 1,800 years of church history, the almost universal belief of the church was that God created in six days, a little over 6,000 years ago, and the earth was destroyed by a global year-long catastrophic flood. But in the, early, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, new theories of earth history began to develop. And there were a number of men who contributed to this idea. I want to focus on just a, a few of them. One of them was James Hutton. He studied medicine at uh, the university. He took over the family farm after his studies, but his real love was geology. And in 1788, he wrote a journal article, and then he expanded it into a book seven years later called Theory of the Earth. And as he looked at the uh, 
at the, at the rocks there in Scotland where he lived, he could see evidence of wind and water erosion on his farmland. He could see that particles of sediment were carried to the creeks and then carried to the rivers, and the rivers would dump those sediments on the ocean floor. And then he also could see evidence of volcanic activity in the past. And, and so he imagined that the continents were slowly being eroded into the ocean. The ocean floors were then lifted up to become new continents, and then they would be eroded into the ocean, and then the ocean floor would be lifted up to become new continents. So he said, uh, Earth history is cyclical. It's just going in a cycle. Continent, erosion, uplift, continent, erosion, uplift. He never saw a single continent erode into the ocean. He never did a single scientific experiment to show that that's what happened. He was speculating and imagining about the unobserved past to explain the earth he sees in the present. Then there was Georges Cuvier. He was a French comparative anatomist and paleontologist. And in 1812, he published his theory of the earth. And he looked at the fossils that were found in and around Paris uh, and speculated that they were the result of a series of catastrophic floods separated by long periods of time. And in each of these floods, uh, most or all of the creatures living at the time perished and then Survivors either repopulated the earth or God created new creatures to replace what had died. He never saw a single one of those catastrophic floods. He never saw one of those rock layers with the fossils in them form. He was speculating or imagining about the unobserved past. And then there was Charles Lyell. He was born the year that James Hutton died and he built on Hutton's ideas. He studied law at Oxford University there were no professional geologists in, in these days. There were no university geology degrees in these day, days. This was in the infancy of geology. And in 1830, he published his Principles of Geology, uh, the first of three volumes. And he argued that there have never been any major catastrophic events of a continental or global scale but that all the processes of geological change have been slow and gradual. Oh, an occasional earthquake here, volcano there, every so often, but not really any more frequently or more energetically or powerfully than we see on average uh, per year today. Just slow, gradual processes. And so in the early 19th century, you had three competing views of Earth history. You had the catastrophist view of George Cuvier and others. And uh, they believed in God. They were clearly theists. They believed in a supernatural beginning, that God supernaturally created the first creatures. They didn't believe in evolution. And there were evolutionary ideas floating around. And this is long before Darwin. And then there was a catastrophic flood sometime after that creation that, that wiped out most or all of the creatures, buried many of them in sediments. They became fossils. And then the earth recovered from that event. And life went along for a long period of time. And there was another catastrophic flood that destroyed more creatures, buried many, in, and they became fossils. And this happened many, many times leading up to the present. And it was, it, they were clearly thinking millions of years. And then there was what became known as the uniformitarian view by James Hutton and Charles Lyell. 
And from their writings, we can't be sure if they believed in the supernatural beginning. They might have been secret atheists, but on their timeline, there were no seas. No catastrophic floods of a continental or global scale. Just slow, gradual processes of change. And they were clearly thinking millions of years. And then there was a group of authors in the early 19th century who collectively became known as the scriptural geologists. They were the men that I studied in my Ph.D. research. And they were defending the biblical traditional view of a supernatural creation week of six literal days, followed about 1,600 years later by Noah's flood, which they argued was responsible for producing most of the geological record of rock layers and fossils. And then the earth recovered from that event up to the present. And this whole period from creation to the present was about 6,000 years. Three different views of earth history. Well, that was one Christian response to those ideas, those old earth ideas. But most Christians quickly accepted the millions of years. They didn't give any specific numbers to that, but they were, they were talking about untold ages. They were clearly thinking millions of years. And so Christians tried to fit those millions of years into the Bible. And uh, I had to start with Genesis 1. And Thomas Chalmers was a Presbyterian minister and a naturalist and uh, up in Scotland. And in 1804, as a young pastor of 24 years old, he began to preach what became known as the gap theory. He said, the Bible doesn't tell us how old the earth is. It tells us how old man is, about 6,000 years, but it doesn't tell us how old the earth is. So we can take all the time that geologists want to talk about and we can just stick it between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis 1. He never gave a sustained discussion of this, uh, a biblical argument for this. He just asserted, and he was a very persuasive preacher and uh, very influential in the church. Another approach was that of George Stanley Faber. He was an Anglican theologian, well-respected, and in 1823 he published a book in which he argued for what became known as the day-age theory. That the days of Genesis aren't really literal days. They're figurative of long periods of time. And if we just do that, we can harmonize the Bible with what the geologists are saying. Well, those were reinterpretations of Genesis 1. But if you're going to fit millions of years into the Bible, you've got to do something with Noah's flood. And there were a couple approaches. One was John Fleming. He was a Presbyterian minister and a zoologist. And in 1826, he published an article in which he argued that Noah's flood was a global peaceful flood. It was so peaceful, it left no geological evidence. And the proof is right there in the biblical text, he said. Noah sent out a dove at the end of the flood. It came back with an olive leaf in its beak, and that's proof positive that the flood was so peaceful, it didn't even damage the plants. I don't know anybody that holds that view. Because a global peaceful flood is an oxymoron. That's like talking about square circles. Do you think there's any uh, sedimentary evidence in Florida and Georgia as a result of Hurricane Michael? Yeah, a lot. So a more popular view was that of John Pye Smith, a congregational theologian. 
And in 1838, he published a book in which he argued that Noah's flood was a local flood in the Mesopotamian Valley of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, modern-day Iraq. And it's just described in exaggerated language. And that has become a very popular view in the church today. Now, those men that I just mentioned are all would all be considered conservative Christians. They believed that the Bible was the inspired, infallible Word of God. But there was one other approach, and that was the liberal theologians. Liberal theology had been developing on the European continent from the middle of the 18th century, but it had been largely kept out of Britain and North America uh, because of the influence of the great evangelical awakenings under the Wesleys and Whitfield and others in Britain and Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and others here in the United States. But liberal theology was starting to seep into the churches in the 1810s and 1820s. And the liberals said, you other people are all wrong because you're, you're treating Genesis 1 to 11 as history. It's not history. It's mythology. It's the ideas of the ancient Jews, pre-scientific ideas. So in the early 1800s, we had these various compromises with old earth geology. The gap theory, the day-age view, the global peaceful flood, the local flood, and Genesis is myth. And in the midst of all of that were those men that I studied, the scriptural geologists, who we would call today young earth creationists. And uh, I found about 30 authors in Great Britain writing between uh, uh, 30-page pamphlets to 700-page, two-volume books, writing between about 1820 and 1850, raising biblical, geological, and philosophical arguments against these older theories and against these various reinterpretations of Scripture. And if you want to learn more about that history, uh, this is a shortened version of my Ph.D. thesis. But what I showed in that, in that research was that contrary to what most historians of geology have said about this period of the early 19th century, it was not a battle between the geologists who knew the rocks and the theologians who didn't know anything about it. It was actually a, a battle of a philosophical and religious nature. It was a worldview conflict. It was a conflict between the religious and philosophical ideas of one group of scientists and non-scientists who were interpreting the geological evidence versus the religious and philosophical assumptions and worldview of another group of scientists and non-scientists who were looking at the same evidence. And we don't have to get complicated here, but we need to understand what was going on. There was the worldview called deism. Now, deism had been developing in the late 17th and early 18th century. Um, and deists say, well, there is a God, a creator, he made the world, but he made the world in a rather simple form. He built into it the laws of nature, and then he let it run uh, according to the laws that he, he built. Kind of like a, a watchmaker who makes a watch, he winds it up, and then he lets it run according to the way he designed it. So in a deist view, God is distant. He's in the past. He's not involved in his creation. There are no miracles. There's no inspired scripture. There's no answer to prayer. There's no incarnation. There's no resurrection. And it was a religion of good works. And it received a very firm response from Christians. Another worldview that was becoming popular was atheism. Now, there have always been a few people 
who, who didn't believe in God, but most human beings who have ever lived have believed in some kind of God or gods. But atheism began to take control uh, in Europe, particularly in France, where it led to the bloody French Revolution. And of course, the atheist says there is no God. The universe is all there is. Contrast that with biblical Christianity. Like deism, the Bible teaches that there is a God who is transcendent. He's above, beyond, outside the creation. If the creation disappeared, God would still exist. But the Bible says one other important thing, and that is that God is imminent. He is present everywhere in his creation, upholding his creation by the word of his power. And from time to time, he works in his creation in a way that the Bible calls a miracle or an unusual act of providence for his own divine purpose. So three different views of God and his relationship to the world. And we have a pretty good idea. Historians have a pretty good idea of what the theology of those old earth proponents were. And I could talk about others, but just the three that I mentioned. Hutton was probably a deist or an atheist. We can't be sure. Cuvier was a deist or a vague theist. He certainly believed in God, but he was not a Bible-believing Christian. And Lyle was a deist or a Unitarian, which for this subject doesn't make any difference. So I want you to notice something very, very important. These men were not unbiased, objective pursuers of truth. They had a worldview. And they were living in Christian Europe. So they were consciously anti-biblical. And some of them made their views very clear by what they wrote. James Hutton, up there in Scotland, he said, The past history of our globe must be explained. Okay, now he's going to lay down a law for how do we reconstruct the past history of the earth. It must be explained, he said, by what can be seen to be happening now. No powers are to be employed that are not natural to the globe. No action to be admitted except those of which we know the principle. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, if we're going to reconstruct that past history of the earth, we need to limit ourselves to present natural processes. What has he just ruled out by that law? He's ruled out creation. Creation wasn't happening when he wrote that sentence. And creation wasn't natural. It was supernatural. What else has he ruled out? He's ruled out Noah's flood. Noah's flood wasn't happening when he said that. And Noah's flood wasn't a natural event. Well, it was natural in the sense that water flowed downhill in Noah's flood, just like it flows downhill today. And moving water eroded and carried sediments, just like moving water does today. But the flood wasn't simply a natural event. It wasn't just a fluke of nature. It was a divine judgment. It was an, a divine interruption to the normal course of nature. So he's ruled out creation in the flood before he ever looks at the evidence. In another place he said, But surely general deluges, that was an old way of saying global floods, form no part of the theory of the earth. Why, Mr. Hutton? Why can't we have a global flood in our past history? He says, why? For or because. The purpose of this earth is evidently to maintain vegetable and animal life and not to destroy them. Now you see the logic? He says, look at, look at our earth. 
It's obviously designed to, to uh, support plant and animal life. So we can't allow a global flood in our past. That would destroy all the plant and animal life. So what's he doing? He's reasoning that the present is the key to the past. Fundamental error. The present is not the key to the past. The 100% infallible account of the all-knowing eyewitness creator is the key to the past and the present. Divine revelation is the key to the past and the present. So we have these three views of earth history. And the uniformitarians and the catastrophists did have a different view of earth history, but they were reasoning the same way. They were reasoning that the present is the key to the past. The catastrophists were reasoning that the presently observed catastrophic events are the key to explaining the past. The uniformitarians were saying, no, the present slow gradual processes are the key to explaining the past. And the scriptural geologist said, no, biblical revelation is the key to the past and the present. Charles Lyell said this, I've always been strongly impressed with the weight of an observation of an excellent writer and skillful geologist who said that for the sake of revelation, he's referring to the Bible, as well as of science, of truth in every form, the physical part of geological inquiry ought to be conducted as if the scriptures were not in existence. Now, I wouldn't have any problem with that if the Bible didn't talk about any uh, geologically significant global events. But it talks about two. The third day of creation when God caused dry land to appear. Evidently, that means that part of the crust of the earth came up out of the water from that global ocean of the first two days. And that water runs off, you're going to have massive erosion and sedimentation, but you're not going to have any fossils in those sediments because God hadn't created any plants or animals or people yet. The second significant geological event was Noah's flood, which was designed to destroy all the land animals, birds, and people not in the ark. And by implication, as we really study the text, a catastrophic event, it would have ripped up all the vegetation on the land and buried lots of creatures in sediments. So when he says we need to do geology as if the scriptures were not in existence, that's a very anti-biblical perspective. In another place, in a private letter to one of his fellow uniformitarians, he said that he wanted to free the science of geology from Moses. Isn't that an interesting statement? What has he got against Moses? He wants to silence God's eyewitness testimony. God was there at creation. God was there at the flood. And he's told us what happened. He hasn't answered every question we want to ha ask, but he's told us the key truths to understand what happened so that we can understand the present world that we live in. Charles Darwin went on his famous five-year voyage around the world beginning in 1831. He took Charles Lyell's book, first volume of Principles of Geology, on the boat with him, and he thoroughly absorbed Lyell's thinking. And he said this, 
I always feel as if my books came half out of Lyle's brains and that I never acknowledged this sufficiently, nor do I know how I can without saying so in so many words. For I've always thought that the great merit of the principles of geology was that it altered the whole tone of one's mind, and therefore that when seeing a thing never seen by Lyle, one yet saw it partially through his eyes. And that's 15 years before he published his book, Origin of Species, and what Darwin did. Most of of what he did on that five-year voyage was studying geology, but he did study biology, and all he did was he applied Lyle's principle of uniformitarianism, slow, gradual change will explain everything you see in the rocks, and he just applied that to biology. Slow, gradual changes among living creatures will explain how you can change... uh, you know, a, a microbe, he didn't know about microbes yet, but a microbe into a microbiologist. So a lot of Christians today are concerned about evolution. And they're saying we've got to resist evolution. We've got to resist theistic evolution, which tries to say that God used evolution to create everything. There are a lot of Christians and Christian leaders who are saying we need to resist evolution. But Most of them don't understand that the problem didn't start with Darwin. It started with the idea of millions of years. And so in the early 19th century, you have these three competing views of earth history. The biblical traditional view, the catastrophist view, and the uniformitarian view. And by about 1840, those first two views were rejected. Uniformitarian became the ruling dogma in geology. And 1840 is also about the time when geology became a degree at the university. And it's about the time that geology became a profession where you could get paid to be a geologist. And so all of the students who went to the university to study geology were trained to think like a uniformitarian. And as a result science became controlled by a set of assumptions that now have been applied to all the other sciences. And I call it uniformitarian naturalism. Three simple assumptions controlling science today. The first assumption is that nature is all that exists. Now, not all scientists believe that. There are scientists who do believe in God. But most scientists do their scientific work as if nature is all that exists. So they might believe in God on Sunday or Saturday whenever they're going to their holy religious services, but when they do their science, they do it as if nature is all that exists. The second assumption controlling science today is that everything can and indeed must be explained by three things. Time and chance and the laws of nature working on matter. If you have those three things, time, a lot of it, millions and millions of years, chance and the laws of nature, the laws of physics and chemistry, you can explain the origin of everything. You can explain the origin of the rock layers and the fossils. You can explain the origin of plants and animals, the origin of man, the origin of language. You can explain the origin of stars and galaxies, the origin of the solar system. You just need enough time, chance, and the laws of nature. And the third assumption that took control of geology and in a modified way is applied to all the other sciences is that the processes of geological change have always been operating in the past at the same rate 
and frequency and power as today. Erosion, sedimentation, earthquakes, volcanoes, they've been going on in the past and at about the same rate and frequency and power as we observe today. And it's mainly slow, gradual change. Well, let me illustrate. You have the old earth geologists who have those naturalistic assumptions. Then you have a Bible-believing Christian who has biblical assumptions. He doesn't believe that nature is all that there is. He doesn't believe that everything can be explained by time and chance and the laws of nature. And he doesn't believe because he believes God's Word. He doesn't believe that all the processes we observe today have always gone on in the past the same way. But here's what happened in the early 19th century. Those old earth geologists said, listen, if you want to help us develop the... the uh, the young science of geology, you need to put your Bible down. You need to come over into this neutral ground because, you see, you're biased. You need to do geology as if the Scriptures were not in existence. And so a lot of Christians put down their Bible. They didn't pay careful attention to what the Bible had to say. And they went over into that neutral territory. But the old earth geologists never put down their naturalistic assumptions. They never got into that neutral ground. And once the Christians were in the neutral ground, the battle was over because there really is no neutral ground. And so operation science and origin science. A person's worldview doesn't have very much influence on operation science. A scientist in China who's an atheist can do research on cancer cells and how they, how they multiply and come up with an explanation and a way to, to stop it. He can write up the results of his research publish it in a journal, and a scientist in the United States who's a Christian and another scientist in Saudi Arabia who's a, who's a Muslim, they can reduplicate the experiment to see whether they get the same results. And so their worldview doesn't really affect their operation science because it's constrained by those observations and experiments in the present. But in origin science, worldview is critical. And so what we need to understand and what most Christians don't understand today, including most of our evangelical theologians, is that everybody has the same rocks and fossils. We can call that the facts. They have the same Grand Canyon, the same rock layers, the same erosional features. But if they start with naturalistic assumptions, they're going to interpret that evidence as evidence of millions of years and no global flood. But geologists in the 19th century and geologists today will look at the very same evidence with biblical assumptions, with the eyewitness testimony of the Creator, and they see all kinds of evidence for a global flood and a young earth. So the battle is not at the level of the rocks and the fossils. The battle is at the level of the starting assumptions that are used to interpret the evidence. It's a battle of worldviews. Well, what happened? Well, as far as I can tell, by about 1850, virtually the whole church had compromised with the millions of years. The commentaries were changing to fit that, and uh, the scriptural geologists were dying off, and they had no way to reproduce themselves. And so I want to show you what happened following this, and I want to remind you of another passage of Scripture the end of First Timothy, Paul says, Timothy, guard what has been trusted, what was entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. 
which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Paul said, be careful. There are ideas out there that are called knowledge that are not really true. They're knowledge falsely so-called. And if you're not careful, you or the people in your church will be led astray. Well, I want to show you some men who did not go astray themselves, but their compromise and their, the fact that they didn't understand where the millions of years came from has led others astray. One of those was the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. In 1855, at the age of 21, he preached a sermon in which he said, Can any man tell me when the beginning was? Years ago, we thought the beginning of this world was when Adam came upon it. Yes, that's what the church believed for the first 1,800 years, that Adam was made on the sixth literal day of history. And that's what the Jews believed for the previous 1,400 years. But, Spurgeon said, we have discovered that thousands of years before that, God was preparing chaotic matter to make it a fit abode for man, putting races of creatures upon it who might die and leave behind the marks of his handiwork and marvelous skill before he tried his hand on man. And in another sermon, a couple of decades later, he talked about millions of years and even mentioned geology. He obviously was being influenced by what the geologist said. But in all of his preaching career and all of his writings that, ha that have survived, all of his sermons and other writings, he never, he never gave any sustained discussion on this question. There's just a few scattered statements. And he evidently held to the gap theory. Then there was C.I. Schofield, who wrote his Schofield Reference Bible, published in 1909. And millions of copies of this Bible went out all over the English-speaking world, and it was translated into other languages. And in the marginal note of Genesis 1-2, he had the gap theory with this statement. The first creative act refers to the dateless past and gives scope for all the geological ages. And that statement was in the Schofield Reference Bible until the 1967 edition when they changed it. But the way they changed it still leaves the door open for millions of years. And millions and millions of Christians forgot a very important point. And that is, it's the Bible that's inspired, not Schofield's notes. Whatever study Bible you have, may I remind you, it's the biblical text that's inspired, not the notes. The Bible is the commentary on the notes, actually. So we need to, we need to keep that clear in our minds. Then there's the sad story at Princeton Seminary, which has been duplicated at many other schools. Charles Hodge was the lead theologian in the mid to late uh, 19th century. He was old earth, but anti-evolution. He said the Bible doesn't say how old the earth is. Initially, he favored the gap theory, and about 1860, he switched over to the day-age view. He died, and his son, A.A. A. Hodge, became the lead theologian. He accepted the millions of years, but also toyed with the idea, well, maybe, just maybe, God used evolution to create. He died, and B.B. Warfield became the lead theologian. He became even warmer to evolution. He was an ardent evolutionist until his conversion to Christ at about age 18, he wrote a lot on this subject, and uh, he never carefully dealt with the, the biblical text in terms of exegeting the text. 
And he was even warmer to the idea of evolution, as long as God is guiding it. Well, he died in 1921. Princeton Seminary went downhill very rapidly into liberal theology, and there are a number of reasons for that, but I think this is a major reason. And then there's the sad story of Charles Templeton. He was a great evangelist. He preached to thousands here in the United States and Great Britain. Thousands of people came to Christ through his preaching, but he had questions about evolution. He didn't know what to do with it. And so in the late 1940s, he went to seminary to get answers. He went to Princeton Seminary, which by then was theologically liberal. He didn't get answers. He got professors teaching him that Genesis 1 to 11 is mythology. He left the seminary. He continued to preach for a few more years. He left the ministry, went into journalism. He died as an atheist in 2001. And the last book he wrote was Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And at the end of that book, he said this, I believe that there's no supreme being with human attributes, no God in the biblical sense, but that life is the result of timeless evolutionary forces having reached its present transient state over millions of years. Ideas have consequences. Charles Hodge was old earth, but anti-evolution. A.A. Hodge was old earth and, well, maybe evolution, as long as God is guiding it. B.B. Warfield was even more open to that idea. And after they died, and I believe they went to heaven, Charles Templeton went to their seminary and became an apostate. Ideas have consequences, and sometimes it takes decades to see the fruit of them. Well, Davis Young is a very, very influential geologist. He's a professor emeritus of geology at Calvin College, son of the great uh, E.J. Young, great Old Testament professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And he, more than anyone else, as far as I can see from my writing, uh, my reading, has influenced evangelical scholars, Bible scholars, to accept the millions of years because his work is cited in their writings. And he said this, The Christian who believes that the idea of an ancient earth is unbiblical would do better to deny the validity of any kind of historical geology and insist that the rocks must be the product of pure miracle rather than try to explain them in terms of the Noahic flood. An examination of the earth apart from ideological presuppositions is bound to lead to the conclusion that it is ancient. Well, friends, I want to submit to you that statement could not be farther from the truth. It is impossible to examine the earth apart from ideological presuppositions. You either believe the eyewitness testimony of the Creator or you don't. It's impossible to look at the rocks with an empty mind. Everybody has assumptions. Well, as I said, Davis Young has influenced a lot of people, a lot of theologians, to believe in millions of years and think that it doesn't matter. One of those is C. John Collins, a professor of Old Testament at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. St. Louis, in his book, Science and Faith, in which he argues for something like the day-age view, he concludes this, I conclude then that I have no reason to disbelieve the standard theories of the geologists, including their estimate for the age of the earth. They may be wrong for all I know, but if they are wrong, it's not because they have improperly smuggled philosophical assumptions into their work. 
No, that is exactly what they have done. And I've had some spirited email exchanges and personal interactions with Dr. Collins over the years trying to get him to rethink that statement, but he's not budging. My favorite professor in seminary, one of, one of two favorite professors, was Wayne Grudem at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. His systematic theology text has been translated into 12 major languages, and they're working on six more. In that text, he says, Although our conclusions are tentative at this point in our understanding, Scripture seems to be more easily understood to suggest, but not to require, a young earth view, while the observable facts of creation seem to increasingly favor an old earth view. No, it is not the observable facts. It is the anti-biblical assumptions that have been used to interpret some of the facts. And ever since I had him as my supervising professor in seminary in the late 1980s, uh, I've been trying to get him to rethink that, that statement, but I haven't made any progress. This book appeared in 2016. Grand Canyon, Monument to an Ancient Earth. It's written by 11 authors, eight of them professing Christians, three of them non-Christians. And right away, I have a red flag that goes up. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So why are eight Christians joining with three non-Christians to write a book that rejects the biblical flood and argues for millions of years, and criticizes young earth creationist geologists. But in the inside cover of that book are glowing endorsements from Jack Collins and Wayne Grudem. Well, that was 2016. That book is written by theistic evolutionists and, and non-theistic evolutionists. And the lead author of that book said that the book was written not only to convince people to accept millions of years and reject Noah's flood as a global flood, but she says to influence the church to accept evolution. Well, this book was published in 2017, Theistic Evolution, a scientific, philosophical, and theological critique. It's a a thousand pages long. I think there's 25 authors Almost all of them are old earth proponents. Wayne Grudem says, who's one of the editors, that this book is not about the age of the earth. And it's not. It's a critique of theistic evolution. But both Wayne Grudem and Jack Collins contributed to this book attacking theistic evolution. But the year before, they gave endorsements to a book who the authors of the book say was written to influence the church to accept theistic evolution. There's something going wrong here. And I've written to Dr. Grudem and pointed out and documented for him the articles where the lead author says that the uh, three of the authors were not Christians. We've got a problem. When people hear the word evolution, they think, well, that, that's about you know, how, how you change a microbe into a microbiologist, how you get all the plants and animals and people. Well, that is evolution, but that's not all that evolution is. Evolution is really a three-part theory 
to explain all of reality. Or we could say it's a four-part theory if we want to say that human evolution is a separate category, but that's simply part of biological evolution. But there's also geological evolution to explain how the earth came into existence and how all the rock layers and fossils formed and the erosional features were, were formed. And then we have cosmological evolution to explain how stars and galaxies came into existence, how comets and solar systems came into existence. It's all an explanation. Uh, it's, it's an explanation that's based on the assumption that we can explain the origin of everything by time and chance and the laws of nature. It's all a myth because it's based on naturalism or atheism. And it rejects the eyewitness testimony of the Creator. And we've got a lot of Christians today who reject biological evolution, but they accept geological evolution and cosmological evolution by accepting the Big Bang in billions of years. And it, it's, it's grieving to me. And the people that I've already showed you, they're not heretics. They're not horrible people. They believe the gospel, but they don't understand where the millions of years came from. And they're teaching the church, the age of the earth doesn't matter. The real problem is Darwin. No, the real problem is the rejection of the authority of the eyewitness testimony of God. D.A. Carson was also one of my professors, one of the most brilliant and careful New Testament scholars in the church today. I learned a lot from him in my Gospel of John course that he taught. He wrote the book, The God Who Is There. And in that book, he says, in a brief one-and-a-half-page discussion of creation, evolution, and the age of the earth, he says, I hold that the Genesis account is a mixed genre that feels like history and really does give us some historical particulars. At the same time, however, it is full of demonstrable symbolism. Sorting out what is symbolic and what is not is very difficult. But he doesn't give any examples of uh, from Genesis 1 or Genesis 1 to 11 to show that it's full of symbolic, uh, demonstrable symbolism. And on page 15, the same page of this quote, he recommends only three books for further study, one by a theistic evolutionist and two by old earth creationists. And then in 2016, he edited the 1180-page uh, book, The Enduring Authority of the Christian Scriptures, 40 authors. There's one chapter by uh, Dr. Kristen, Kirsten Burkett, who's a professor of ethics and philosophy at Oak Hill Theological College in London, one of the leading evangelical schools in England. In her chapter, Science and Scripture, she says at the end of that chapter, Scripture is our solid foundation. Other knowledge should be interpreted understood and interpreted in its light, not the other way around. I agree with that statement, but the problem is, in her 40-page chapter, she doesn't discuss a single Bible verse. I've read the chapter two or three times just to make sure that statement is correct. And she indirectly advocates for theistic evolution. She spends most of the chapter talking about the various theistic evolution views. She dismisses young earth creation in one page. She cites no young earth literature. 
She frequently, in that one page, misrepresents young earthers. She subtly attacks Ken Ham without naming him. And she accuses young earth creationists of, quote, letting their science dominate their reading of Scripture. But that is exactly the opposite of what we do. We start with the inerrant Word of God and use this as our eyewitness testimony to guide our interpretation of the evidence. Well, now I'm going to show you some more pictures of more men. And I, I just want to preface it. I have books by some of these men that have been very helpful to me. I'm not saying they're horrible people. I'm not saying they're heretics. I'm not saying they're not Christians. But they didn't understand where the millions of years came from. And they have influenced the church to believe that the age of the earth doesn't matter. Charles Spurgeon, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, C.I. Schofield were already talked about. R.A. Torrey, the first uh, uh, president of Moody Bible Institute. James Montgomery Boyce. Gleason Archer, Francis Schaeffer, J. Vernon McGee, McGee, John Stott. And then we come more recently, most of our leading apologists, William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, Paul Copan, Norman Geisler, Greg Kukul, John Lennox, Frank Turek, Hank Hanegraaff. They all accept the millions of years and say it doesn't matter. Biola University here in California and Southern Evangelical Seminary are the two schools that are producing the most apologists for the church today, and they're, they're promoting old earth views. We could talk about Ravi Zacharias. He hasn't personally promoted the old earth view, but his organization has promoted the works of John Lennox, who is old earth. William Dembski, Lee Strogel, I, I'm not, I am not aware that he has personally advocated it, but he has promoted the writings and the, and the people uh, of other apologists who are promoting it. Ken Keithley, Jack, Jack Collins, Tim Keller, Sean McDowell, Eric Metaxas, Wayne Grudem, Millard Erickson, John Piper, Hugh Ross, Walter Kaiser, Bruce Waltke, Dr. Carson, Andy Stanley, R.C. Sproul, who did before... Uh, a, a, a few years ago did say that he no longer held to the framework hypothesis and now believe the days of Genesis are literal, but he never embraced the young earth view. Michael Horton, Stephen Meyer, J.I. Packer. They all say directly or indirectly that the age of the earth doesn't really matter, and many of them are encouraging the church to accept the millions of years, either directly or indirectly. And I just want to say that we shouldn't have any evangelical popes in our lives. We shouldn't have any evangelical cardinal of college of cardinals. I have books by most of those men that have been very helpful to me, but they're not my pope. They're not my authority. I want this book to be my authority because that's the only way that I'm really bowing to the lordship of our triune God. All men make mistakes. The best men make mistakes. You wouldn't have to spend a day with me to know I don't know everything. I make mistakes. Much faster would be to ask my wife after the meeting. She'll give you a long list in 15 minutes. We all make mistakes. The only man that never made a mistake was the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have to constantly come back to the Word of God. Truth is not determined by majority vote in the culture or in the church. 
Well, let me give you a series of pictures to illustrate as I wrap things up. Back in the early 19th, late 18th and early 19th century, the church was saying, come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. And the enemies of the gospel launched an attack against that gospel. It was the idea of millions of years. It wasn't aimed at the cross. It was aimed at the foundation of the cross, the book of Genesis, which explains why we need a Savior. And most of the church said, yeah, but it didn't hit the cross. Don't worry about that. Now, if they had aimed at the cross, alarm bells would have gone off in the church and men would have risen up in defense. But the enemies were smart. They aimed at the foundation of the cross. And most of the church said, it's just a side issue. It doesn't matter whether Noah's flood was global or local. It doesn't matter whether the days were literal or not. Don't worry about that. But if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And over the last 200 years, there's been a relentless bombardment in the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. It is the most attacked part of the Bible. And Darwin, as I said, built on those ideas and first introduced the idea of evolution of plants and animals. But in The Origin of Species, he didn't, he didn't apply it to man. But then in 1871, he wrote Descent of Man, full-blown human evolution. And then the dating methods were developed at the end of the 19th century. Radiometric dating is not what led people to believe in millions of years because the, the geologists were already locked in to millions of years a hundred years before they developed radiometric dating. And then the Big Bang Theory and cosmic evolution. And I could give you quotes from the evolutionists. They see this as a direct hit because it's destroying the foundations. But most of the church says, well, it didn't hit the cross. But what happened in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came to Eve and said, Has God said? He asked a question. He got her confused. He got her doubting about what God said. And then once he got her doubting and confused, then he went for the kill. And he said, You won't die. God's lying to you. So first he got her to doubt God's word and then deny God's word. And he, that strategy worked so well on Eve that I've observed he's been using that strategy ever since. Get people to doubt God's word and deny God's word. And I've observed that Satan is not picky. He'll actually use Christians to get other Christians to doubt and deny God's word. But what did Paul say in 2 Corinthians? But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul said, Satan's going to use the same strategy on you that he used on Eve. And so what have we seen in Western Europe and Great Britain and North America where the gospel once had such a powerful cultural influence and where thousands of missionaries went out to the world? What have we seen as the church has compromised with millions of years? We've seen growing unbelief. I just saw a report the other day. There are now 130 million atheists in Europe, Western Europe. The, the, the number of people attending church in Britain on a given Sunday is about 6%. And a lot of those churches aren't worth attending because they're so liberal. And America is rapidly going down the same path. We've got now 25% of Americans are nons. They don't identify with any religion, which means they're either practical atheists or professing atheists. 
So the church's compromise hasn't caused the church, hasn't caused the world to become more open to the gospel, more believing of the Bible, less. And we have more, more Christians today inventing new ideas to try to harmonize the Bible because the gap theory didn't work and the day-age theory didn't work and so they're coming up with new ideas. And so that's why God has raised up uh, different creation ministries and uh, a few, a few, very few Christian universities and seminaries like masters that are standing on the truth of the Word of God to shoot down those ideas and... Uh, to show that, help the church understand that, that their speculations and imaginations masquerading as truth. Their philosophy masquerading as science. And that's why we go out and do seminars in the church to equip the church so the church can suit down those ideas. So that then the church can say, come to, the, come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. And there'll be integrity in the message. There'll be power in the message because we're saying the gospel in this book is true because the history in this book is true right from the very first verse. We can't be smorgasbord Christians and say, well, I believe that part. I don't, I don't believe that part. I believe that part and I don't believe that part because the world looks on and says, you don't believe your Bible. Why should I believe the part you do believe? We're in a war, folks. It's a war of ideas. It's not a war of people. It's a war of ideas. So we don't hate, we don't hate atheists. We, don't, we shouldn't hate atheists. We shouldn't hate evolutionists. We shouldn't hate theistic evolutionists. We shouldn't hate old earth creationists. It's a war of ideas. And we need to stand for the truth of God's Word in these days. Well, this lecture is available if you want to watch it again or share it with somebody else. And my book uh, that it's based on is out there. I also have a, a lecture, Noah's Flood, Washing Away Millions of Years. And I, I, the first part of the lecture, I explained some of the biblical evidence that shows this was a global catastrophic flood, not a local flood in the Middle East. And then in the rest of the lecture, I show how the, the evidence, the geological evidence, has been misinterpreted because of those uniformitarian assumptions controlling geology and give some examples. We also have a lecture uh, out there, illustrated lecture by Dr. Andrew Snelling, our PhD geologist at Answers in Genesis. And he shares some of the overwhelming evidence from geology for a young earth and global flood. The rocks are not screaming millions of years. They're screaming the flood in a young earth. And Andrew is also an expert on radiometric dating, and he has a, a video on the, the uh, radiocarbon, carbon-14, which is never used to date rocks and can't be used to come up with millions of years. Maximum you could date anything with carbon-14 is only about 80 to 100,000 years. So it's never used to date rocks. It's the other methods, uh, uranium decaying into lead, potassium into argon, etc. And Andrew explains that in uh, a way that lay people can understand. The book by John Morris, The Young Earth, is a great, well-illustrated book on some of the geological evidence uh, for a young earth. And he has a whole chapter on radiometric dating, which is well-illustrated. My lecture, Biblical Creation, which explains why uh, all the old earth views are wrong and um, that the Bible really teaches a young earth. And... Uh, 
coming to grips with Genesis, which is an in-depth scholarly defense of the young earth view uh, by uh, giving biblical theological uh, arguments, historical arguments. And then we have the answers books, which answer the 130 most asked questions. Questions like, what about dinosaurs? Where did Cain get his wife? We've got a chapter on carbon dating, and then we've got another chapter on the other dating methods. Uh, Chapter on how can you see distant stars in a young universe? The universe is only 6,000 years old. Doesn't natural selection prove evolution? These are the questions people have today, and you don't need a science degree to understand the answers. And then we have answers for the, for the grade school kids, great for parents and grandparents to teach. And any books or DVDs uh, you want to combine together, you can make, uh, save a lot of money that way. We have the Begin book, which has Genesis 1 to 11, Exodus 20, the book of John, the book of Romans, the last two chapters of Revelation. And sandwiched between those portions of Scripture uh, is a, a summary of the biblical history tying it all together, and then it has an article that answers 10 of the most asked skeptical questions and presents the gospel. So a great, great resource, uh, normally $13, just $3 here at the uh, conference. Ken Ham's Foundation Series, his six best talks. He's a brilliant communicator, uh, can be a great Sunday school curriculum, divide, divides in half into 12 sessions and comes with the teacher's guide and student workbooks. Our Answers Magazine, a great way to get a, a, uh, a drip feed of biblical uh, worldview thinking into your life and into the life of your children. And it has a center section for the really little kids. And uh, you can, if you sign up for it, you can get the digital subscription free so that you can, uh, if you like to read things on paper, you can read it on paper, and then your kids who don't know how to read on paper, they can only read on an iPad or a telephone, they can read it there. You can sign up for that in the, in the, in the book tables. And uh, we have a free newsletter that comes 12 times a year. I encourage you to sign up on that and stay informed in what we're doing and, and pray for us and uh, pick up a free brochure for the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. And... Uh, it's beautiful to come there in the summer with all the beautiful gardens, uh, the flowers and everything, but it's also beautiful to come in the winter because we have about 300,000 Christmas lights that are being put up right now uh, at, the, at the Creation Museum. And then out at the Ark, we turn it into a rainbow. Um, we're taking it back from the LGBTQ people. And... In December, we have a jaw-dropping laser-projected program on the side of the ark explaining creation to Christ and the gospel. So, great time, any time is a great time to visit. We have a lot of articles on our website, and you can uh, find a lot of answers there. So, I just want to drive home to you that The history of the Bible is foundational to the theology and the morality. And what we have seen happen over the last 200 years is as as the history has come under attack, we've seen much of the church and the culture of the once Christian West reject the theology and the morality. Michael Denton said this in a book in 1985. Today it is perhaps the Darwinian view of nature more than any other that is responsible for the skeptical, uh, agnostic and skeptical outlook of the 20th century. 
But the problem didn't start with Darwin. And Denton was an agnostic when he wrote that, but it's an astute observation. The problem didn't start with Darwin. It started, according to Ernst Mayer, when it became obvious that the earth was very ancient rather than having been created only 6,000 years ago. This finding was the snowball that started the whole avalanche. But it wasn't a finding. It was an assumption imposed on the geological evidence. And so we need another reformation. We need to nail, figuratively speaking, Genesis 1 to 11 on the doors of churches and come back to the truth of the Word of God. Psalm 40 says, How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Most of the church has turned to the proud, to scientists who arrogantly pontificate that they know how this world came into existence. But they're constantly lapsing into falsehood, which is why they have to rewrite their textbooks every few years. And Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be safe. If you say that you are a young earth creationist, you can expect people to call you names. You're a fundamentalist, ignoramus, anti-science, Bible-thumping, stupid person. But those are just labels. The issue is, what is the truth? And we need in the church a new revival of a fear of God more than the fear of man. And we need to stand for the truth of God humbly, respectfully, graciously, but we need to stand in the church today. And so I hope you now understand where the millions of years idea came from. God bless you.